Well, I don't know how you've managed this, but you've given me another topic on marriage. <laughs> um, it seems to be a, a recurring theme now. Um, and actually, you know, I, I, I found, it really, found it a real blessing preparing for both messages on this, but um, you've managed to go from giving me one controversial topic about marriage, divorce, to something that is altogether even more controversial. Now, you'll understand what I'm saying if you've ever planned a wedding. Because the guest list is, to say it clearly, is something of a minefield. You know, when you come to prepare a guest list for a party, and if you haven't done this, I want, if you're perhaps younger and, you want, to, and I want, you want to think about your birthday party and who you invite to your birthday party, it is a minefield because actually you've got all these people that want to come and you can't fit them all in. And actually, our passage today is a really strange passage because we see that actually the king who's preparing a wedding feast in this passage actually appears to have the opposite problem. That actually, he can't get the people he's invited to come. Um, but it's a, it, is a, it is one of those topics where when you, it, when you, when you get it, you go, yeah, I remember that. I got married 11 months ago, so it's still fresh in my mind. And you have your, you have your first list. And if people, don't, people on your first list can't come, you have your second list. I have heard of a third list, but to be honest, there's no way my brain could have stomached that. So, um, we've, uh, but we, we have this idea that a guest list for a wedding indicates perhaps value. If you're on the guest list to someone's wedding, they value you for some reason. But in this, in this parable that we're about to read, that value isn't reciprocated. We're actually about to read, of a, read about a wedding in which the person sending the invite is showing value to the person receiving it, but at the same time, that person is not showing value in return, and they, they are, they're not going. They're choosing to ignore the invite. Let's just... Just pray before we read God's word again. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the words of Jesus. We thank you for this parable that has been preserved for our sake, Lord. And Lord God, we pray that this morning, right here in Great Parks Chapel, you would speak through it, that your word would go out powerfully, that we would be challenged but also where we need to be encouraged, Lord. But we ask that each one of us, as we read the word and as we understand the word, would be drawn closer to you, perhaps even drawn into your presence for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage is in Matthew chapter 22. Um, If you want to turn there, I know it will be on the screen, but uh, you might want to follow it in your own Bible as well. We're going to be reading the first 14 verses. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have, have been butchered and everything is ready. 
come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. You know, this passage has some rather uncomfortable truths in it. And we're going to look at them today because we don't do ourselves any favours by avoiding uncomfortable truths. So as we come to this parable, what we need to be aware of is that when we come to the word of God generally, we can sometimes come to it without the right context. In fact, while some, some people would say that it's the job of a preacher to bring the Bible into the 21st century, I don't agree. It's actually the job of a preacher to bring the people from the 21st century into the time of the Bible so that they understand what's going on. And so the first thing we must understand here is something about the way in which weddings were prepared back in this time. You see, when I had my wedding, I sent out all the invites. It said it'll be the 10th of August and everybody knew when it would be. They might have known that I was preparing to get married. They might have heard about me getting engaged, but they knew when they got the invite when the wedding would be. Not so in Bible times. In fact, actually, it was different. You would receive an invite, and then the invite would say, so-and-so are getting married. We would like you to come. We will let you know when it is. And you see, the thing is, it's probably because weddings in those times were probably more, planning them was a more short-term affair. So we wouldn't take a year, they wouldn't have taken a year to plan a wedding. But the point is that the people who received the invite would not have known exactly when this wedding was coming. And in this parable that we read, we see the wedding compared to the kingdom of heaven, to God's coming to be with his people. And that's our first point. We know the kingdom of heaven is coming And actually has already come in the form of Jesus. But when it comes literally, we know it's coming, but we're not going to know when. Now, friends, if you had a really important event you needed to be at, and you knew it was coming, but you didn't know where it was, would you not clear your calendar a little bit? Would you not make sure that there was nothing in your calendar that you couldn't drop immediately? Because I would. If there's something that I know is coming and I know I need to be there, I would clear my calendar of anything that might get in the way. And so this is what these people have been asked to do. Because actually, this isn't just a wedding. It's rather topical, actually. It's a royal wedding. So can you imagine now, if we cast our mind back a few weeks, you get something to say, 
Harry and Meghan are getting married. You're invited, but we haven't quite decided when it's going to be yet. This is the royal wedding. The wedding of the year, the wedding of the century. And actually, if we look at this wedding and we look at scripture, this is the wedding of all time itself. You know, if you were invited to the royal wedding, you would want to be ready. Even if you didn't know when it was. And these people who are invited, they know the wedding is coming. They don't know when it is. And when the servants go to them, they've got other things to do. They've got other priorities. And that's perhaps my first point, is do our priorities in life ever get in the way of us being part of God's kingdom? Perhaps for some of you, you're going to understand a little bit about what God's kingdom is for the first time today. And why you should take the step to be part of it. Perhaps some of you have heard this over and over again. In fact, if you've been here for any length of time, you've been going through Matthew for some time now. And you will have heard the phrase kingdom of heaven over and over and over again. And you know it's coming. But the question is, friends, are you acting accordingly with your priorities and your diary? Because the people we're going to look at in a moment were not. And my second point, this is probably my favorite point comes from verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, friends, we've all heard the kind of, that, that idea that heaven is going to be something quite boring, floating around on a cloud, harps, wings. I'm really uncoordinated, so you give me wings, I'm going to have trouble. But that's not what, what heaven's going to be like. The Bible doesn't give that impression. And if, friends, that's your idea of heaven, then today I want to present to you something far better. Because the Bible tells us that actually being part of the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, is going to be like a celebration, like the best celebration you could ever possibly think of. You see, actually, when we think of a wedding, a wedding is a time of joy. When we go to a wedding of people that we know, of people that we care about, actually, it's far better than any other celebration. That actually, when we come to the kingdom of heaven, it's going to be a joyous occasion. It's going to be a celebration. I would go so far as to say it's going to be a party. Now, be careful with the connotation of that in your head. Be careful with applying your human idea of what a party is to that but it's going to be something you're going to enjoy it's not going to be something that's oppressive it's not going to be something that boxes you in it's not going to be something that's boring it's going to be a wedding it's going to be a celebration at the center of it is going to be love now let's be honest if we're really honest with ourselves we can think of some good weddings that we've been to And some other weddings that we've been to. And I want to put to you that actually when we categorise good weddings and other weddings, there's something at the core of it that's missing in those other weddings. You know, we actually 
hear in the, you know, we, we, we hear in the papers or we hear in magazines about celebrity weddings, don't we? And you hear about all of these extravagant occasions where, you know, you've got bands coming into play, big names. You know, you, you might even find it, you know, at the royal wedding, you had heads of state from all around the world. They all came. There was so much gold in Westminster Abbey. They had such lavish, lavish celebrations. And we think about that, and we can think back to other weddings where it's been all about what will so-and-so wear? What are the decorations going to be like? Who's designing the suit? And then we can fast forward in those relationships, sometimes, sadly, to them coming to an end. And actually what we know is that the wedding was a bigger deal. The wedding preparations, the decorations, the entertainment was a big deal. And actually the marriage at the middle of it, the love at the middle of it, got squeezed and put to the outside. And we know that we've been to weddings like that, where actually it's been all a show. We've sat there. And actually there's been something missing. The two people have been so addicted to kind of, this is our big day, that the love that's supposed to be the thing that we have joy joy over is put to one side. You know, I say that sadly because my mate had a surf simulator at one of his weddings. That was brilliant. I really enjoyed that. I got to level 10, which was such an achievement. I've never been so proud. I stayed on for three seconds, but uh, that's, uh, that's beside the point. But the surf simulator is not the point of the wedding. The chocolate fountain is not the point of the wedding. Any good wedding you've been to, What you enjoy about it is your two friends or your two family members that love each other and they're at the center of that. You know, I went to a friend's wedding. uh, It was a a family wedding, actually, back in February. And they decided to do the whole thing on a budget. What they could cut corners on, they cut corners on. It was all in their church hall. Their church family rallied round. You know, it was one of the best weddings I've ever been to. Because what it did was it put the focus on my friends who were getting married. And that's what this celebration is going to be like. You see, who's this for? This celebration is one that's prepared for a king, and that, or by a king for his son. Who are these people in the story? The king is God the Father. You know, we see time and again in scripture, God described as the king of kings and the lord of lords. And his son, who's his son? Well, he's God himself as well. But we're talking about Jesus, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God who came to this earth. And that's where the joy comes from. Because just like when we go to a wedding, one of our friend's weddings, and we, we celebrate with them because actually we know they're in love. And it gets all mushy at times and we're like, oh, okay, speed things up. But we know, that we know they're in love and we, we're, actually, we're, we're genuinely excited for them. We genuinely love seeing them get married. The people at this wedding are going to be filled with joy because they're going to see the love of this son. You see, this son actually is genuinely going to get married. And we mustn't miss this point. You see, actually, this parable is a parable about a wedding that's actually going to happen. But if we fast forward in scripture, this wedding's really going to happen. 
There's really going to be a wedding at the end of time. And there's really going to be Jesus Christ as the bridegroom for that wedding. And at the end of time, we say wedding, but actually it's going to be more than that. Marriages and weddings, they're designed, as we looked at a few weeks ago, to point to a union between Jesus Christ and those who love him. You know, when we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I actually think we sell it short with the word relationship. Especially in today's culture, relationships, you can be in and out of them all the time. What we're talking about is Jesus being united in a covenant, a promise, an unbreakable, unshakable promise with those who love him, who he loves. His people, God's people, the church. And if we turn to Revelation chapter 19, just for a moment, we can see that. And we see a passage that is entitled, in some of your Bibles, The Wedding Feast of the Lamb. And we read it being called out, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb, that's Jesus, has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen, it says in brackets, stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Keep, you might want to keep your thumb there. We might be back there. So this wedding is going to be a joyous occasion because actually we are going, to, we are going if we're there, to see the most committed, the most perfect, loving relationship that you could ever see, the most loving marriage, the most unbreakable bond. And just like when we see our friends get married and we know they're making the right choice because we go and we go, they're made for each other. That's the feeling we're going to have when we see this, if we're there. You see, at the centre of heaven, the thing that's going to bring the joy is Jesus Christ. Let's put a question in there, though. John Piper once posed the challenge to our motivations about heaven, about why we want to be there. Is it that we want to be there because Jesus is there? He said this, would you go to heaven if God wasn't there? Would you want to go to heaven if God wasn't there? And he challenges to say that actually a true believer, a true child of God would not want to go to heaven if God weren't there. Because God, in our minds, has to be the thing that makes heaven, heaven. Otherwise, you're just inventing, you're conjuring up whatever you want heaven to be. And the Bible is very clear. Heaven is going to be heaven because that's where God is. And if you can, if you, in answering that question in your own heart, can't say to yourself completely truthfully, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want to be there if God wasn't there. Then maybe there's some work that needs to be done between you and God. I'm not saying that that's anything to do with your salvation. We all struggle. We're on a journey. But actually, it points to our motivation, doesn't it? Our priorities. Now, I'm very well aware that we're only in verse 2, and uh, we've been going for quite a while now. So we're going to move on. Um, But the second point that I have for you... No, I think the third point. I added in another point that wasn't in my notes, but never mind. Third point, this is going to be confusing. The kingdom of heaven and this wedding is going to have some conspicuous absences. Have you ever been to a wedding and gone, 
oh, so-and-so, I'll go and talk to them. And then so-and-so isn't there. You go, why are they not there? Sometimes, very occasionally, you find that person wasn't invited. And when someone who you expect to be at a wedding isn't there because they weren't invited or because they chose not to come, they turned the invite down, you know there's a backstory there, don't you? There's some reason why they're not there. And this parable points to us, and it, it, it points to us the fact that not everyone that you might think will be in heaven will be in heaven. You see, we have to also go, when is Jesus telling us this? If we, check, if we jump back to verse 1, Jesus spoke again, spoke to them again in parables. This is an ongoing conversation. And you, if you've been here for the last few weeks and you've been going through Matthew, you're going to have sensed the tension. Because Jesus is, ha- is, is basically on collision course with man-centered religion, with the religious leaders of the time. And they are wanting to say that this is what God thinks. God wants us to be in charge of dictating his law. We're we're righteous enough to choose what God thinks, thank you very much. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. That's the summary of it. And this parable comes after after this long discussion that Jesus has been having. And the tension is mounting, and the tension is eventually going to break on the cross. When human beings are so focused, so driven to destroy the idea that they can't define God, that they nail God to the cross. They take that bridegroom, that one that brings us so much joy at the center of that wedding with his great love and his mercy, and they nail him to a cross. Unknowingly, bringing salvation to the world. God works in ways that we would not see. But these people are mentioned here in this parable, and Jesus talks about them. And they would have been stood there knowing that Jesus was talking about them. He says to, he says to them that actually this king sees the refusal of the invitation. So he's saying, you're refusing the kingdom of God here. You're deciding, to, you're deciding you have better priorities than what God is setting. And so, like in the history of the Jewish people, they've turned away. They've ignored the invitation to be God's people. But God has sent prophet after prophet by this point saying, you've gone away. Turn back to me. You know what happened to a lot of those prophets? They got killed. These servants are pointing to real people. You know, the Jewish people at the time, the, the state in Judea, was supposed to be the place that understood God the best. But just like every other human being, their view had been corrupted by what they wanted God to be, by, wanted, by, by what they wanted to understand God to be. To the point where actually there was a history of the Jewish people trying to kill prophets. If you became a prophet in the Old Testament, you know, it was, it, it was kind of like you did it till you were dead. But the, the way you died, it was, it was quite likely that actually it would be one of your own people that swung the axe. You know, it's been compared in the past to the life expectancy of a marine sergeant leading from the front in World War II. You know, the job of a prophet was a hard one. 
And the point being that these people that were so-called religious people, that, so, that had the scriptures, they'd be, they had the Old Testament, God had sent his word, and these people had still decided to define for themselves who God was to the point that they were willing to kill his prophets and kill his Messiah. You go, well, that was daft. But you know what? I know that you can't find one particular heritage in England, but if England had been the promised people, God's chosen people, would we have done the same thing? No, of course not. Yeah, we would. We would have absolutely done the same thing because the Jewish people of the time were just as human as everybody else, just as fallen as everybody else, just as selfish as everybody else. But this is a challenge for us that sometimes if you are addicted to religion, if you are addicted to rules and regulations about how God will and won't act, and I'm not saying God's word here, but if, if ritual makes up the bulk of your religion, then there is a danger that you are denying God. There is even a danger that you may be a conspicuous absence at that wedding feast one day, that somebody might be there going, you know, so-and-so went to church every week. They even, uh, they even got involved in some of the activities. Why aren't they here? Scary thought, isn't it? But that's what Jesus is saying here. Moving swiftly on, point number four. The kingdom of heaven, and this is a quick point, is going to be filled with the greatest of diversity. You see, we've seen those who refused God's invitation, and we've seen God's justice come upon them. That after a while of being slow to anger, of allowing them to refuse the invitation for a while, God eventually steps in and says, no, I cannot stand your smear on my holiness anymore. You know, God holds back his justice so that he can show mercy. He's slow to anger, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't get angry. But we move on to this second group of people. And God's reaction is very interesting. You see, there's a theme that we won't go into here, that salvation is first for the Jews. That actually everything, every message that God sends is first to the Jewish people. And it, it's a pattern throughout the Bible, but then goes to the rest of the world, the Gentiles. We're not going to touch upon that, but... What the king is saying here is, actually, I'm going to open the invitation up. And so as we read the next few verses, we read this. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not come. So go to the street corners and invite, the ba- invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. So this king doesn't just decide... Oh, that's all right. Well, the people I've invited don't want to come. They were the only people I was going to invite. No, he's a gracious king. He wants to show his glory, his greatness to anybody. And so he sends these people. These are the second guest list. He sends for these people and he says to his servants, go to the street corners. In fact, if you read in some of the in some other translations, you read it as go to the byways. You know, You find all manner of people on street corners and byways, don't you? If you stand there long enough, basically the entire world goes by. 
if you stand on a street corner. You might meet people from different countries. You might meet people from different walks of life, different jobs, different professions, different ages. You stand on a street corner long enough hand, handing out invites, you will hand them out to basically every, every demographic you can find. And it doesn't specify where the street corner is, by the way. And there's a reason he doesn't. Because he doesn't want people to get hooked up on, oh, is this street corner, the one in Jerusalem that I know, you know, the one where everybody goes by? Because that would have still been limited, wouldn't it? No. This street corner is symbolizing, he is giving this invitation to the world. To every tribe, every tongue, the Bible says. And so, friends, the kingdom of heaven is going to be filled with such great diversity that you will worship if you were there. You know, one of the diversity is a trigger word these days, isn't it? It's a bit of a, it's a buzzword. We hear it because it's a good thing. But actually, we aren't all the same and God made us different. But often misused these days. And people say, yeah, we need, you know, we need diversity in our society. And humanly, they try and manufacture diversity. You know, they're never going to manufacture diversity because people can't cope with other types of people. We isolate ourselves. You know, we're never going to to achieve a diverse society. I hate to break it to you. But I think we all know that. We all know what's in our hearts, what our predispositions are. But God is. You know, when people talk about diversity in this world, if you gave them a picture of what God is going to do with his kingdom, with people from every nation, every time in history, such diversity that we can't sum it up, it's going to be amazing. You are going to see people from everywhere, and it should lead us to worship. One pastor wrote this, You're going to say, look at what he has done with black and white, Asian, Hispanic, African, Jew. Who could do that but God? And when when that's sunk in a bit, you're going to realize that when you see the kingdom of heaven, you're not going to critique it or evaluate it. You're just going to look at it and go, how staggering, how beautiful. And my, this is my God that did this. He's my God and we are his people. Oh my God, look at the church. And we say that reverently. You are going to be stunned when you see what God does with the kingdom. It's going to be far beyond anything any human could accomplish. The best president of the UN could not accomplish what God is going to do. Because his invitation is going everywhere. And not even that, he's not even going to have this entry requirement of being good enough. We read in verse 10, who do the servants go to? They gather all the people they can find, the bad as well as the good. Now, we need to pause for a second, because here we might get a bit muddled up. Jesus at this point has already spoken about what good means. So when he uses the terms bad and good, he doesn't mean them in terms of morally perfect and not morally perfect. Good enough for God and not good enough for God. He's just using the words good and bad because we kind of get that. You know, people who have got uh, you know, a good reputation and people who have got a bad reputation. 
Okay? That's the way we remember it. See, Jesus has already had an encounter with someone who comes to him and says, good teacher. And Jesus goes, yeah, good teacher. Why are you calling me good? Only God is good. He's made the point already. So we're not to get hung up on that. The point being, people of good reputation, people of bad reputation, they're all getting the invite to this wedding. And the wedding hall is filled with guests. This is going to be one amazing wedding. But point four is perhaps the most important one because it comes down to dress code. Now, I will admit to you, I keep using illustrations for my own wedding, but it's fresh in my mind. I, got a bit, I had a slight bridezilla moment on my wedding day. You see, I walked around and I discovered that my best man and one of my ushers are utterly incapable of tying their own tie. And it really gets my goat. It really does. Thankfully, my brother-in-law was one of the other ushers. And he's, you know, he, he knows how to look good. Some, some people might describe him as fly. Okay? I don't talk like that because... I'm not fly, but he is. He comes, and I said, come over here, I've got a problem, and you need to fix it because you're my usher. My best man has a six-inch gap between his neck and where his tie is. And, my, and Chris, my other usher, he's, he's like nearly as bad. Can you fix it? Dutifully goes off and fixes it. But the point being, the dress code at a wedding is often important, isn't it? And we read in this final closing passage, this final challenge that Jesus leaves us with. Because the king comes in, he surveys the guests, but he notices one thing out of place. He notices a man who's not wearing the wedding garments. He's not wearing what is acceptable to wear to a wedding. You go, oh, that's, that's not fair. Maybe this guy is from a, you know, he's maybe, maybe he's from, let's put it in the human terms, maybe he's not got enough money to wear what he should wear to this wedding maybe he's not been able to afford the tuxedo and that works if you're in the modern in the modern age that view god must be such a snob like just because that guy forgot his tie or can't tie his tie or whatever and this is where we go back to the bible times because you see one thing that was common traditionally if there was a wedding is that the man running the wedding often the father would provide the garments for the wedding. And that is significant because everybody who was invited to the wedding would be provided with the garment to come. You didn't actually have to splash out for your tux or rent something or whatever. If you were invited to the wedding, part of the deal was, we'll give you the right clothes to wear. They dictated the dress code, but at the same time, they gave you the clothes. You know, actually, that would save us a lot of time, wouldn't it? So this king comes into this room knowing that he's given the garments out, knowing that everybody in this room has been invited. But someone's not wearing what they should be. You know, this man has turned up to the royal wedding, the wedding of all time, not wearing what he's been given. What's the king's reaction? It's to cast him out. It's to bind him hand and foot and throw him out into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we're told at the end of time, those who are not at the wedding are going to be separated from God. It's described in the Bible as hell. Separation from God. Going back to our previous question, 
if you were to answer the question with Noah, I'd go to heaven if God wasn't there. You might even think, well, maybe that's even more convenient. I can do what I want. Actually, those who don't want God at the end of time are going to get what they wish. See, one pattern in scripture is that God hands people over to what they want. And this man doesn't realize it, but he actually gets what, he's, what he wants. Because he wants to be in a different place. He doesn't want to submit to this king who's saying, you need, you need to wear this. And that actually, to understand this properly, we need to understand this idea of this clothing. This clothing that the king has given out. Because this is a parable and it points to something bigger. You see, what the Bible talks about in, is, is actually that we, when we become Christians, when we come to God, we humbly recognize that we cannot stand in God's presence in our own, what it says is righteousness. If you take the us out and just think of it as rightness, that makes it a lot easier. In our own rightness, we're not good enough. The clothes we wear metaphorically are not good enough for the wedding feast when we come to god and we become one of his children we have to say god i'm not right i'm not right with you i don't have the wedding garments for a royal wedding we and actually that takes some some humility doesn't it and the wedding garment in this passage is humble It's a humble wedding garment. And all of the people who are wearing it have said, I didn't deserve this invite. They just found me on the street corner. But the king has been so good to me. I'll wear it. Yeah, I'll wear it. Of course I'll wear it. But this guy hasn't. Now, it's also interesting to say, it doesn't say that he's underdressed either, does it? It says that he's just not wearing a wedding garment. You know, he could be underdressed. He could be Mr. I'm okay as I am. I don't need that wedding garment. I'm all right the way I am. I had an incredibly circular conversation with someone yesterday about who God was and about how actually God requires change and he didn't believe it. We went round in circles. Yeah, but I'm all right as I am. Mr. All right as I'm okay as I am is not going to cope well in this situation. Mr. I'm okay as I am is going to find out at the end of time that he's not okay as he is. That Tim Keller said, by God's grace, he meets us where we are. But if we, if we accept him, he doesn't leave us where we are. He, do, he doesn't leave us the option of staying where we are. You know, actually, that humility also involves following him, turning up. Mr. I'm okay as I am is not going to be at the wedding. And maybe you are thinking, I'm okay as I am. God will be all right with me. Mr. Okay as I am might have perhaps an idea that actually I don't need to change. I am who I am. Today's society is great at telling people that you are who you are. Or maybe he's Mr. Self-made man. And maybe he's, not, he's breaching the dress code because he's turned up in his tux. Look at me. Aren't I good? I've been invited to the royal wedding because I deserve it. And maybe that's us too. 
Maybe we think we can do it well enough on our own. Maybe we're stood before God saying, look at me. You know, Jesus told a parable about that in the book of Luke. There was a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee said, God, thank you that I am not like other men. And the, and the tax collector said, God, have mercy on me. I'm, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, the one who went away justified was the tax collector, not the man who said, look at me. Thank you that I'm me. And as we close, I want to ask the question, friends, what will you be wearing to the wedding of all time? Are you going to humble yourself? Jesus Christ lived a perfect life so that he was righteous. His rightness is good enough for us. If we turn to Revelation and finish there, we simply read that actually the bride, and the irony in in this is the people invited into this wedding are also the bride of the wedding, weirdly. You can ask me about that one later. The bride is given fine linen, bright and clean, to wear. You know, Jesus lived the perfect life. He was obedient to God his whole life so that you would look like you were obedient to God your whole life. And so, friends, I would ask you as we close, do you want to be able to stand at this wedding? Do you want to experience the greatest celebration you you could never even think of? Do you want to be bound to the most selfless husband, bridegroom that you could have in Jesus Christ who loved his people to the point of death, even death on a cross? Is that what you want? Or are you willing to take the chance that you might turn up and it'll be all all right? I'll leave it there. I want to pray as we close. And if you think that this is you, that you could be in danger of being the guy who, had, who, who hasn't cleared their schedule, the guy who's rebelling against God, or even the guy who just thinks they want to know God, but they want to do it on their terms. Or the woman. Sorry, that was not a great way of putting it. I want you to pray. And I want you to come to God. And I want you to humble yourself. I want you to turn from your ways. And I want you to do that in your heart. I want you to do it because I know it's best for you. It's because this book says it's best for you. It's because God says it's best for you. So let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been invited to the wedding of all time. We also thank you that we have been invited and given everything we need to be there by your grace, that we're clothed in your wedding garments. If we only would accept you and bow the knee to repent and turn from our sin. And Lord God, we pray for ourselves, we pray for our hearts. And if we are in danger that we are rebelling against you, that we're not prioritising you, that we're not living as though this wedding is at the end of time. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit and change us. And Lord God, I want to pray for anybody this morning who doesn't know you as Lord and Saviour, who is yet to humble themselves and wear what you want them to wear. 
to accept that Jesus Christ lived the life they could never live. Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would help them this morning to understand their need and from the bottom of their hearts to ask you to humble them, Lord. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ who bought us, who died for us, who rose again and will one day be bound to us for all eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.